the drone that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan was mistaken for a U.S. drone returning to base. At about the same time, the Iranian militia drone was all, also came in for the attack. There may have been a little bit of confusion at first that delayed a response. There may have been more UN employees in Gaza working for anti-Israeli militants than first thought, according to Israel. The reports that we got last week, and uh, UNRWA brought them to us, um, were deeply, deeply troubling. And NATO's Secretary General is in Washington making the case for Ukraine funding. I will meet uh, members of uh, Congress uh, tomorrow. Today is Tuesday, January 30th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. A little discussed U.S. military desert outpost in the far reaches of northeastern Jordan has become the focus of international attention after a drone attack there killed three American troops and injured at least 34 others. Jordan has condemned the attack, but as we hear now from VOA's Rick Pantaleo, not everyone in Jordan agrees with that. While Jordan itself condemned the terrorist attack, some Jordanians interviewed Monday blamed the U.S. support of Israel in its war against Gaza and considered it a legitimate reason to target U.S. forces in the Middle East region. Almir al-Shabela, a Jordanian geopolitical analyst, said the attack represents a new dimension of the Mideast conflict. This attack represents a new dimension of, of this conflict, actually targeting the American troops inside Jordan or on the Jordanian border represents that this targeting is expanding from Syria to Iraq and now to Jordan. An Iran-backed militant group is thought to be responsible for the deadly attack. Rick Pantaleo, VOA News. The Pentagon says it still hasn't identified the attackers with 100% certainty. Uh, we know this is an IRGC-backed uh, militia. Uh, it has the footprints of Qatab Hezbollah, um, but not making a final assessment on that. Um, our, our teams here are continuing to do the analysis, but we know that um, Iran is behind it. And um, certainly, as, as we've said before here in this, in this briefing room, um, Iran continues to arm and equip these groups to launch these attacks. Pentagon spokesman Sabrina Singh, who says despite calls for aggressive retaliation, the U.S. doesn't want to escalate the situation. We certainly don't seek a war, and frankly, we don't see Iran wanting to seek a war with the United States. And that is a sentiment echoed at the White House on Monday. Here's National Security Spokesperson John Kirby. Uh, we are not looking for a war with Iran. We are not seeking a conflict with the regime uh, in a military way. Um, and as I said in the, in the opening, we're not uh, we're not looking to escalate here. This attack over the weekend was escalatory. Make no mistake about it. And it requires a response. Make no mistake about that. I will not get ahead of the president's decision making. Preserved and protected. Joining us now to talk about the drone attack is VOA's national security correspondent, Jeff Selden. He's at the Pentagon. What is the latest from the military brass? Well, the, the U.S. on Monday afternoon announced the names of the three U.S. Army reservists who were serving at the Tower 22 base in Jordan and were killed when the Iranian-backed militias launched a one-way drone attack on the facility. They were all out of Georgia. There also was an update that the number of injuries, initially there, there were 34 injuries, that uh, the number of injuries has risen 
and that uh, some of the more serious injuries, there were eight U.S. service members who had to be transported from the base to uh, better medical facilities, that three of them are going to be now transported to uh, Landstuhl Air, Air Base in Germany, where there is uh, even additional higher level care available to uh, to address their injuries. We understand, though, that they're in stable condition. As for the attack itself and what happens next, a lot still needs to be decided. But the U.S. and the Pentagon saying that it is clear that the Iranian-backed militias are responsible for the attack. Uh, a spokesperson at the Pentagon said it had the, quote, footprints of Kataib Hezbollah, one of the bigger of the Iranian militias, although the she cautioned that no final determination has been made. And it seems right now that one of the reasons that the attack was so deadly, was so devastating, was that the Iranian, the Iranian, uh, the drone used by the by the Iranian backed militias was able to come in at a time when one of the U.S. drones was returning to that base, causing perhaps a bit of confusion. But also it struck early in the morning. It hit a residential barrack where there were a lot of troops who were still there, not yet starting their day. So the U.S. pointing to, uh, uh, unfortunately, a bit of very bad luck that led to the high casualties in this attack. Yeah, tell us more about the confusion. There was apparently, a, as I understand it, another, there was an American drone, the U.S. drone coming back at the same time, and they confused this drone for that one? Tower 22, uh, the, the U.S. base in northeastern Jordan, is is very close to some of the U.S. bases, including the Al-Tamf garrison in Syria. It is a, a, almost a coordination and logistics hub that helps the U.S. forces that are in Syria, also in Iraq, conduct some of their anti-Islamic state missions. And as such, they had a drone that was out running a, a mission. We're not told exactly what it was doing. But by chance, at about the same time that the U.S. drone was returning to base, the Iranian militia drone was all, also came in for the attack. Uh, officials believe it was probably coincidence at this point. But because of that, there may have been, the initial reports suggest, there may have been a little bit of confusion at first that delayed a response and as a result, it allowed the uh, the drone launched by the Iranian-backed militias to evade the base's air defense systems and, and cause damage and casualties. I know that there was speculation that um, the um, retaliation was going to be swift by the United States. Uh, any Did they talk about that at all? U.S. officials, both at the White House and at the Pentagon, have been speaking about planning about thinking long and hard and choosing targets wherever they may be uh, about how to send an effective message to Iran to the Iranian-backed militias that this is no longer this is not acceptable and that the attacks must stop and that should they continue to try to kill more U.S. service members serving in Iraq and Syria and again the U.S. says they are there to fight the Islamic State terror group that there will be a high price to pay. There are meetings that have been going on today that have gone on yesterday when word of, of the attack, the deadly attack on, on the U.S. base broke, uh, about how best to do that. The sense is that the U.S. is going to hit hard, but is going to pick its targets very closely. One of the big questions that has not yet been answered, and when it was posed at the White House, uh, a spokesman there said that he wasn't going to telegraph any punches but the question is, 
does the U.S. decide to hit at the IRGC, the Iran elite Quds Force, which is directing and pulling the strings and funding many of these militias that have been launching the attacks, More now more than 165 attacks since mid-August at U.S. troops in Iraq, in Syria, and now in Jordan. Will the U.S. decide to up the ante and strike inside of Iran, or does it think it can find high-profile, meaningful targets that will hurt Iran and serve as deterrence? which the previous U.S. strikes against Iranian-backed militias appear not to have done, will they find that outside of Iran, but still in the region? VOA National Security Correspondent Jeff Selden. Following these other stories from around the world, Pakistan and Iran on Monday agreed to work together to improve security cooperation in the wake of deadly airstrikes by Tehran and Islamabad earlier this month. At least 11 people were killed in those attacks. Toyota said on Monday it is urging the owners of 50,000 older vehicles to stop driving the cars immediately until the owners can repair or replace faulty airbags, which could explode and potentially kill the drivers. The U.S. will reinstate sanctions on Venezuela's oil sector if the Venezuelan government does not lift its ban on a leading opposition candidate running for president later this year, a White House official said on Monday. More protests by Israelis calling for the immediate release of hostages. Protesters waved Israeli flags, chanted, carried posters with photos of some of the 136 hostages still being held in Gaza, and blocked traffic. Almost every day in Tel Aviv, hostage families and their supporters gather to protest, usually blocking traffic as they voice demands for the return of their loved ones. Uh, you know, this is our life now. We can't have this luxury of sitting home and just waiting for things to happen. We, uh, we feel that, like we have to do something. We need to go to demonstrate. We, uh, to, tomorrow we are going to the uh, uh, house of, the, uh, of our prime minister to stand in front of it. Um, yeah, it's, everything has changed since then. We don't have any... Uh, uh, normal routine, like working or uh, uh, doing sports. The Qatari Prime Minister on Monday said that good progress was made in weekend talks with the U.S., Israeli, and Egyptian spy chiefs on a new Israel-Hamas hostage release deal. Details now from Reuters correspondent Zachary Goldman. We are in much better place than where we were uh, a few weeks ago. The Prime Minister of Qatar on Monday said that good progress was made toward a new hostage deal. I think yesterday was uh, good progress made uh, to get uh, things back in shape and to at least to lay a foundation. Speaking to an Atlantic Council webinar, Prime Minister Mohammed bin Abdulrahman bin Jassim Thani said he hoped to present a framework for such a deal to Very Hamas. Soon, but we are hoping actually uh, uh, to relay this proposal to Hamas and to get them 
to a place where uh, they engage positively and constructively in the process. Qatar and Egypt have opened channels to Israel and Hamas and brokered a seven-day truce in November, in which Hamas freed more than 100 of the 253 people it abducted in the October 7th cross-border rampage that triggered the Gaza War. In return, Israel approved increased aid for the devastated enclave and released scores of Palestinian prisoners. One of the former hostages is Amit Susana. On Monday, she visited the burnt houses on Kibbutz Kfar Aza, where she lived. Security camera footage shared with Reuters shows Hamas gunmen dragging her in a white sheet across a field toward Gaza. She stumbles, falls, and is lifted onto one of the captors' backs as she kicks and struggles. It took them over an hour to take me to the border. I was beaten up really badly. My entire face and body was bruised and swollen. Susanna spoke on Monday as part of a campaign by families and supporters of the remaining hostages to focus attention on their plight. I hope that the remaining hostages there are able to keep their faith alive and stay strong. But even the toughest souls can't hold on for such a long time. More than 100 Israelis are believed still captive in Gaza. Since October, Israel's military assault on that territory has killed more than 25,000 people, and more than 2 million Gazans have been displaced and are suffering from shortages of food, water and medicine. Amid fighting on Monday in Khan Yunis, Palestinians were seen heading further south toward Rafah, many carrying all their belongings in their hands. Hamdan al-Najjar said it felt like a siege on all fronts, that anywhere they went, they could be told to head back where they came. It's a hopeless life, he told Reuters. Israel has vowed to eliminate Hamas and return every hostage. Qatar's prime minister said that negotiations, not war, have proven the way to bring captives home. We are seeing in Gaza is not resulting with the is not getting any result to get the hostages back, but the process is the one which is getting them back. The Qatari prime minister was careful to say he was not sure if the current talks might bear fruit, and if so, how soon. Reuters correspondent Zachary Goldman. An Israeli document spells out allegations against a dozen U.N. employees that Israel says took part in the Hamas October 7 assault. The document claims seven stormed into Israeli territory, including one who participated in a kidnapping and another who helped steal a soldier's body. The document said intelligence gathered also showed that at least 190 UNRWA workers were Hamas or Islamic Jihad operatives, without providing evidence. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The reports that we got last week, and uh, UNRWA brought them to us, um, were deeply, deeply troubling. Uh, it is imperative that UNRWA immediately, uh, as it said it would, uh, investigate, um, that it hold people accountable uh, as necessary, and that it review its uh, procedures. I had a very good conversation with Secretary General of the United Nations, Guterres, last week when we were first made aware of these uh, allegations. And we're going to be looking very hard at the steps that UNRWA takes, again, to make sure that uh, this is fully and thoroughly investigated, that there's clear accountability, uh, and that as necessary, uh, measures are, are put in place so that this doesn't happen 
uh, again, assuming the allegations are fully borne out. Uh, certainly, we, ha we've not had the, we, we haven't had the ability to investigate them ourselves, but they are highly, highly credible. At the same time, and as you indicated, UNRWA has played and continues to play uh, an absolutely indispensable role uh, in trying to make sure that men, women, and children who so desperately need assistance in Gaza actually get it. And no one else can play the role that UNRWA has been playing, uh, certainly not in the, in the near term. The accusations come after years of tensions between Israel and the agency known as UNRWA, UNRWA, over its work in Gaza, where it employs roughly 13,000 people. Way's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is in Washington and held a joint news conference with U.S. Secretary of State Blinken. On the agenda, money for Ukraine to carry on the war with Russia. I'm confident that all NATO allies, also the United States, will continue to provide support to Ukraine because this is in our own security interest to do so. It will be a tragedy for the Ukrainians if President Putin wins, but it will also make the world more dangerous and us, uh, all of us more uh, insecure. Uh, it will embolden other authoritarian leaders, not only P Putin, President Putin, but also uh, uh, North Korea, Iran, and uh, China to use force. Uh, today it's Ukraine, tomorrow it could be uh, Taiwan. Secretary Blinken. Uh, the fact that our own allies and partners have actually provided more than the United States, as much as we've already done, uh, should reinforce the message to Congress as it's considering the supplemental budget request that we really do have what is uh, so critical, uh, and that is burden sharing, that this is a load that is being borne uh, more than equitably uh, among uh, allies and partners. And by the way, not just in, in Europe, of course, we have key partners uh, in other parts of the world, notably in Asia, who are participating in this. Uh, but equally, um, if the United States doesn't follow through on our, uh, on our commitments, then it's going to make it more difficult to have uh, Europeans and others continue to do what they've already been doing. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin also met with Stoltenberg at the Pentagon on Monday. South Africa's ruling African National Congress on Monday suspended former President Jacob Zuma's membership after he campaigned for a different political party. The NEC concluded that exceptional circumstances exist to justify and warrant an immediate decision to suspend former ANC President Jacob Zuma in line with Rule 25. The party also said it vowed to launch a legal challenge against a rival group campaigning in his name. Analysts in Western Africa reacting to the sudden exit of Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger from the regional economic bloc, ECOWAS, the economic community of Western African states, and are raising security concerns. The three nations, led by military juntas, announced the withdrawal in a televised broadcast Sunday, accusing the regional bloc of becoming a threat to member states. Timothy Obizu reports from Abuja. 
According to a joint communique issued by the military junta's of Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger, the withdrawal from ECOWAS after nearly half a century takes effect immediately. They said the regional bloc, under the influence of foreign powers, betrayed its founding principles and failed to aid its member states in their fight against terrorism and insecurity. They also criticized sanctions imposed on military regimes in the region by ECOWAS. ECOWAS said it had yet to receive an official notice from the member states. The bloc said it remained committed to finding a negotiated solution to the political impasse. Nigerian security analyst Jaye Gaskia says there will be implications. The withdrawal of uh, members of uh, ECOWAS uh, would have uh, implications uh, on uh, on ECOWAS itself uh, in terms of uh, in terms of in terms of its mandate and purpose for uh, integration uh, to ensure uh, joint security, economic integration, uh, and I think this is a lesson for ECOWAS now that ECOWAS needs to have protocols and the mechanisms in place to begin to respond to the, to, to to that uh, situation of insecurity and instability uh, before it leads to a, a, a point where. Uh, governments are actually overthrown. And I've asked this question several times in the past that uh, at what point is the condition of a country actually uh, subverted? Is it at a point where leaders become irresponsible or is it when military responds to that? The 15-nation bloc was created in 1975 to promote economic integration among member states. ECOWAS, however, has struggled in recent years to reverse a wave of military takeovers in the region, including Mali in 2020 and 2021, Burkina Faso in 2022, and in Niger last year. ECOWAS rules state that withdrawal from the bloc takes up to one year to be finalized. Timothy Obiezu, VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you so much for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The Biden-Harris administration highlighted strong U.S. support for democracy in Guatemala recently, sending a delegation led by USAID Administrator Samantha Power to the inauguration of President Bernardo Arevalo. The group met with President Arevalo and his new cabinet as well as leaders from civil society and indigenous representatives. USAID Assistant Administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean, Marcela Escobari, was part of the delegation. She said the two countries agree to work closely on shared strategic priorities. These priorities are very much aligned with ours. For many years, USAID's work in Guatemala focused on bolstering job opportunities for young people, strengthening citizen security, improving health care for children, protecting natural resources, and expanding legal pathways for Guatemalans to be able to work legally in the United States as well as a a focus on bringing foreign direct investment to Guatemala, which I think will become even easier under this administration. So USAID will be deploying $133 million in these and other efforts, and we will be working hand in hand with this new government. 
The delegation also met with new Minister of Labor, Miriam Roquel, to discuss collaboration opportunities under the Root Causes strategy. President Biden's Root Causes strategy allowed us to really double down on things that we knew were working. And our priorities were creating economic opportunity, improving security, and strengthening governance. And we have had really impressive results in these areas. Just in the last three years, we have helped create more than 165,000 jobs. We've helped more than 100,000 farmers increase their agricultural production, helped bring over 700 million in new sales, and provided nearly 200,000 children under 10 with health and nutrition services. And we are continuing that work. During the visit, Administrator Power announced the new Feed the Future of Rural Financial Inclusion program and an initial investment of $6 million. The program will support access to financial tools for women, youth, indigenous, and others to help grow their enterprises and invest in their rural communities. In terms of its connection to migration, it's clear for us that when there is opportunity at home, people don't feel that they need to look for it elsewhere and migrate. People have come together for a more prosperous Guatemala that can really deliver for future generations. We're excited to be able to support it, said Assistant Administrator Escobari. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 